Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We're continuing our rewatch of the leftovers today as we hit episode five from season two, No Room at the Inn. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I just need to know if I'm gonna need another oar here on Big Squid. While last week's episode was the halfway point of all three seasons of The Leftovers, today's episode is the halfway point of this season. Things are beginning to heat up, so if you'd like to chat about this, you can come over to our private Facebook page, that is Big Squid with Justin Hamilton, and you can join in the conversation over there. There are some people there who are talking about it. I'm sure we would love to have more of you. We want to hear your thoughts. We want to know what you think of the series in general. If you've never watched it before, I'm really keen to find out where you think this might be going, what it might all mean. And if this is your second time checking it out, then, you know, I want to know what you're noticing this second time around or third time around or fourth time around. I don't know how many times you've watched it. There's never enough times that you could have watched The Leftovers, in my opinion. And, you know, I really want to hear what you think of this episode. Oh, my Lord. Matt Jamison. Uh, There's an open page on Facebook too. You can sign up for that. That just lets you know when a new podcast has dropped. But if you want to have a proper chat, sign up to hang out with like-minded people who just love to discuss everything about this. And you know what? Anything else that might be on your mind. We're always up for suggestions of things that you might like us to check out. Right. I don't want to linger. I hope you're ready because we're going to discuss Matt Jamison. Oh, Matt. You're such a conflicting and wonderful and infuriating and confusing character. And I love you and you drive me insane. So let's just get into our rewatch of the episode entitled No Room at the Inn. Hey! Hey! 
Barry and I, they won't let us back into town. Every man for himself out there. It can get rough. What's happening? Those missing girls were spotted out here in the encampment. You need to look at me now, Mary, okay? Look at me. Look at me! Matt Jamison begins his day watching a video from the night before. He scrolls through the image as he watches himself asleep alongside Mary. She lays in bed, blinking, awake but still. Matt rolls over, restless, even in sleep, sometimes waking to see if anything has changed with his wife and then returning to sleep. He begins his day moisturising the skin of his wife, brushing her teeth, applying makeup and dressing her for the day. He takes him with her to church where she sits in a corner. He takes her shopping, ignoring Jerry, taking another goat to the slaughter. Ah, poor goats in this town. He feeds her with a blended food intravenously. Matt makes a simple dinner for himself. It's a microwaved burrito, which he eats happily. They retire to bed where he sets up the laptop to film their sleep. He kisses Mary goodnight and tells her that he loves her. The next day, Matt wakes up, watches the video, moisturises his wife's skin, brushes her teeth, applies her makeup, takes her to church and the same store, feeds her intravenously, eats another microwave burrito, sets up the laptop, kisses Mary goodnight, tells her that he loves her and goes to sleep. The next day, Matt gets up and carries out the exact same routine, even down to another microwaved burrito. But this time, Matt looks tired. He's frayed around the seams. This night when he goes to bed, he asks Mary to give him a sign. He does everything exactly the same from the night she woke up. This is his ritual to attempt to bring her back. But this time it just isn't working. And it wasn't working yesterday. And it wasn't working the day before. Matt believes. He's a believer. But he needs a sign. Just any sign. He just wants Mary to look at him. Just give him that moment. Matt finally snaps and grabs her by the face, yelling at her. Why did she come back and then leave again? He needs answers. He needs a sign to renew his faith. Out the corner of his eye, he catches the video filming them and notices with shame the way he aggressively holds Mary's face in his hand. He gets out of bed, erases the video and shuts the laptop. He won't be filming their sleep tonight. The next day, Matt drives to the bridge out of town, but has hurled up a siren suddenly sound and people from the outside attempt to break into Jarden. Eventually, Matt is able to drive across the bridge and leave the city. He looks down at the camp just outside the town, a lawless community that ripples with unchecked emotional energy. Matt drives Mary to the hospital for her regular brain scans and treatment, hoping that there is some change in her condition. At one point, Matt goes to the toilet, and while he relieves himself, his phone rings. Matt pulls it out of his pocket, and it slips out of his hand, and drops into the toilet he just pissed in. And when he retrieves the phone, it no longer works. Fuck! he yells impotently. Matt pushes Mary in her wheelchair out of the hospital, but before they can leave, a nurse runs out and says someone needs to see them before they leave. They return inside, and Matt is surprised to discover it isn't a doctor who wants to see them, but the hospital's lawyer. He needs Matt to sign some papers that waive any responsibility by the hospital for some of the tests they ran on Mary. Matt is confused. The lawyer explains that there are certain tests they wouldn't have carried out if Matt had told them Mary is pregnant. 
Matters shocked. They were incapable of having children. Now Mary's pregnant? He's overjoyed. The lawyer attempts to point out the chances of Mary giving birth are slim with her age and condition working against her, but Matt can't hear any of this. He's too full of happiness, excitement. The lawyer also points out that in Mary's condition, she can't give consent to her tests. And with that comes the implication to Matt that she couldn't give consent to have sex with him. Matt brushes off these nefarious accusations. He now believes that the reason Mary woke up was so they could make love and have a baby. Matt now has the sign he was looking for. As they drive on their way back to Jardin, Matt sees a car pulled over to one side dealing with mechanical issues. Matt stops to help the man, but once the man sees that Matt has one of the coveted wristbands to Jardin, he attacks him with a wrench and knocks him down. As Matt writhes in agony, the man stomps on his hand so he can remove the wristband. They then steal Mary's and drive off, leaving the two of them behind. When Matt comes to, Mary is looking at him and she speaks. You have to get us back in or we'll lose the baby. Matt gathers his bearings and rises up. He's forgotten about the man. He's barely even acknowledged that there was a little boy in the car as well. He's covered in blood and Mary is once again motionless in the passenger seat. He promises her that he will get her back in, but then discovers that his assailant has stolen his car battery. Matt pushes Mary in her chair all the way back to Jarden as cars drive by, uninterested in pulling over to help them. When they arrive back on the outskirts, a young man approaches Matt and tells him that he can get them in through a secret way. All he has to do is pay a little money. Matt brushes the man aside and walks up to the gate. Nobody is interested in letting them in, especially without the wristbands, but Matt begs for help and explains his predicament. If only he hadn't dropped his phone in the toilet, he'd be able to call his sister and ask for help. One of the policemen takes pity on Matt and sends him to the visitor's centre to get replacement bands for the two of them. Inside, Matt is put through a barrage of questions, but an impatient man behind it begins to arc up. Matt is taking too long and he wants to get in. Matt snaps back at the man and suddenly the two engage in a physical fight. Later... After the fight, Matt has his hands bound and the two of them sit in a room with a few others, strange people who are also attempting to get into Miracle. Matt ignores most of the people there, but one man tells Matt that Mary is saying to him, if they don't get inside to Miracle, they're going to lose the baby. Matt is stunned. That's what Mary said to him earlier. Before he can talk more to this man, Kevin and John arrive to help Matt out. John is happy to help Matt, but he's curious as to why they went to Austin. He also wants to know why Matt's hand is bandaged. Matt explains his day, including the brain scan, but John doesn't believe him. He found the form that stated Mary is pregnant. It fell out during the fight and was given to John to give back to Matt. John doesn't believe that Matt came to Miracle. His wife woke up for just one night. They made love and then she slipped back into her state. John doesn't believe people are healed in Miracle because if that were the case, wouldn't his wife's hearing be cured? Is Matt's wife more worthy than John's wife? John will only help Matt because he owes Kevin a favour, but he needs Matt to tell the truth. Kevin looks on, uncertain what is playing out, but hoping for the best. He wants to believe his friend. 
John is curious as to what he is going to say in five months' time when Mary begins to show. He needs Matt to be honest. He will have to tell people the truth, that he came to town, he was sad and lonely, a little bit confused, and he did something that he shouldn't have done. He has to say that because it is the truth. She never woke up, says John. Matt repeats that line, confused, scared, but he finds some defiance and asks John, what happened to you? Why is John angry? Why is John angry at this place? He's been like this from the start and Matt wants to know what is wrong with him. John decides he's not going to help Matt and Mary get those wristbands. They're on their own. Matt quickly borrows money from Kevin before he leaves and pushes Mary back over the bridge and into the camp. Matt is going to find that guy who said he can get them back in. He walks past people making love, women in high heels walking over the bare backs of men, people passed out in the sun, a man reading, what's next? Alongside a life-size doll of a departed woman, possibly his wife, his partner, a sister, someone he knew. Up on top of a taco stand, a man in a stock with the words repent scrawled above and below him. He's crying. His face is covered in muck. People have been throwing fruit at the man who cries in shame for the community to see. A woman asks Matt, do you want to free him? Matt replies, yes. Then take his place, she says. And soon the crowd is chanting this at Matt. He ignores them. They abuse him. He moves on, looking for the man who can help him get back into Miracle. Eventually, Matt discovers him. His name is Alma, and for $1,000, he can get him back in. Matt only has $400, but Alma won't do it for anything less. Matt now needs to make up the difference. He speaks to Mary and prays with her, knowing that God will show them the way. He opens his eyes and sees a makeshift cross, another sign that he was looking for. Matt approaches the woman with the cross and explains his situation and in the process asks for charity. He asks for $500, but the woman puts him to the test to see if he really is a religious man. Matt answers all of her questions, finishing by telling her that his favourite book of the Bible is Job. The woman tells Matt to wait, walks into her caravan and returns with a big guy by her side. She will give him the money if Matt hits this man across the back with a giant wooden oar and yell the name Brian as he does so. Matt is confused. Why would he do that? Yet knowing why isn't part of the bargain. People surround them and cheer Matt on, but at first he can't find the anger, the power to hit this man. With the crowd roaring, eventually Matt finds it in himself to unleash his frustrations and he breaks the oar across the man's back. The man collapses. Was that hard enough or do I need another oar, he asks. Alma counts his money, points out that Matt is $60 short and then asks him if he is claustrophobic. That night, Alma takes Matt and Mary to a water duct as rain falls and lightning flashes across the sky. He gives Matt a torch and some bolt cutters, explains that they walk down the duct and then once they cut through the bolts at the other end they'll be able to get back into the town. Matt pushes Mary's wheelchair praying and talking as they make their way further inside the duct but the rain is falling and we hear Matt yell as he drops the torch that is swept outside. The water suddenly gushes and Matt and Mary are swept along with it. 
He pulls Mary to the bank, but the wheelchair is gone. He attempts to find shoulder from the rain back in the camp, but people yell at him to get out from under their awnings. As the rain stops, Matt hears his name called and is relieved to see it as Nora who has come looking for him. She takes Matt and Mary over to Kevin and gets them to slip into the boot of their car. Matt is convinced that the cops will look inside the boot, but Nora has called in an anonymous tip that the missing teenage girls have been seen and they watch as the cop cars, lights and sirens blaring, race off to follow down this possible new lead. Inside the car, Matt talks to Mary and reminds them of a trip they took a long time ago and he recites poetry to her. The car lurches to a sudden stop and Nora opens the boot. There's been an accident. A herd of goats have caused a car crash. As they shoo the goats away and move the dead goats to one side, Kevin checks the car and the driver is dead. Matt walks over and realises it is the man who assaulted him. He immediately leans down to the dead man and removes his wristband for himself. There's movement in the trees and Matt looks up to see it is the dead man's son. Matt is at first mortified, but then defiantly points out that the wristband was initially his. The boy silently holds up Mary's wristband to give back to Matt. Matt slips his wristband on Mary's wrist and puts her in the car. He tells Nora he shouldn't have to hide and could they look after Mary for a little while. He takes the boy and walks away, and he eventually finds John driving around with one of his crew. Matt approaches John and tells him what happened, that they came to Miracle, that Mary woke up for a short time, that they made love, and that all of this happened. He hands over his wristband and tells John he doesn't want it. When Mary wakes up and corroborates his story, then he'll return, and when that happens, Matt and John can have a proper talk. This boy needs help. His father is dead, Matt says, as he passes the boy into the protection of John. Matt makes his way outside into the park and he returns to where the man is in the stocks. He has decided to take his place. Why? asks the woman. Because it is my turn, says Matt. He takes off his clothes, climbs to the top of the bus, frees the man and takes his place in the stocks. Matt is framed by one word, etched into the wood, above him and below him. Repent. In many ways, the first Matt Jamison-centric episode from season one is the moment that The Leftovers finds its level and reveals its full potential. This second Matt episode feels like a reiteration of that mission statement. This episode has it all, and Matt is in many ways the perfect character. He is also the most difficult to like. I wrestle constantly with Matt, often oscillating between extreme empathy and then wanting to smack him around the head and yell at him to stop speaking. But I'm always drawn to Matt because he's such a beautifully realised character. He feels like that friend that you stand by even though he makes it tough at times. He's the friend you defend to other people but then can't stop ranting about in frustration to your inner circle. He's a good person who needs to let you know he is good. He is constantly trying to prove himself to the world because he is constantly trying to prove to himself that he is worthy. We've only had a glimpse of the old Matt, the one who celebrated Kevin Garvey Sr. with a genuine toast as he held court with a group of people who loved him very much, even held him in high regard. This Matt is broken. Imagine being a person of devout faith and then having an event occur that shakes you to your bones. He is constantly playing catch up with this world, his everyday existence. 
It is like one day he went to sleep and woke up in a world he barely understands, let alone recognises. In many ways, his wife Mary reflects a part of Matt, a part that is deep inside and can't react, can't wake up from the world he now finds himself in. Before we go further, I want to ask you a question. Do you believe Matt's story? On the one hand, it could be plausible. Mary may have woken up for a little while, only to sink back into her current state. But when Mary talks to him after Matt has been hit with the wrench, that wasn't her talking to him, right? That was him hallucinating. It had to be. Yet in this world, 140 million people just disappeared. So there is something supernatural occurring, right? There's a part of me that thinks that Matt is just incorrect, that he is hallucinating, that maybe something did happen, even though he believes it didn't. But then the man in the visitor centre at Jarden repeats to Matt what he thought he heard Mary say to him. He says, you have to get me inside or the baby's going to die. So what's going on there? But then maybe Matt is still concussed. Well, I'd say he's definitely still concussed, but that doesn't mean this stranger didn't hear Mary. So if you knew Matt, would you believe his story? John certainly doesn't and almost bullies Matt into changing his answer. But if there's one thing you cannot make Matt do, it is stray from his belief or even at least stray permanently from what he believes. Even in his moments of doubt, he finds signs in the everyday world, from the metaphorical to the literal, that feed that belief. Often when Matt speaks up, like he did when he revealed to Nora that her husband was cheating on her before he departed, I just get so angry. Yet I loved him staring down John and asking him what went wrong for him. It isn't a smart move. He and Mary would be back in the town, but he's right to call John out. He's right to stare down the bully and disarm him with a simple yet effective question. Look, when I first watched this episode, I didn't quite know what to think. That's why I wanted to know what you think. I believed that Matt believed his story, but the icky implication of an untoward sexual encounter with his wife, it's just so gross and it makes you question Matt. But in the end, I came back on the side of believing Matt. This is a man who carries out the same routine of that fateful day that she woke up and he turns those routines into his rituals to do anything to bring his wife back. I believe Matt Jamison. But I feared that even with the truth behind him, since he's just so goddamn hard to like, there would be many people who didn't believe his claims. Just what a brilliant episode. While there are lots of serious themes and aspects to dig into, it is also crazy funny. As someone who can get stuck on a song and play it over and over, and just as an aside, I'm sure my neighbours must be sick of hearing at this moment in my life, Interpol's There's No Iron Threesome and Roxy Music's To The Strand of Late, both songs high rotation on Hamo FM. I love the opening with the Bellamy Brothers' Let Your Love Flow on constant repeat. I have to say, <laughs> totally relatable for me. How funny is Matt's ringtone of hallelujah before (laughs) he pulls it out and drops the phone into the toilet. He's just pissed in. And the irony of hearing this snippet of a song, dropping the phone in his toilet with the piss-filled water, and then followed by the news that Mary is pregnant, which is a miracle since she can't have children. That is 
all capped by the hospital's obvious thought that he's forced himself upon his wife. All of this just sums up Matt's world. Like, all of that takes place in a few minutes, and when you say it out loud, it's insane. But it just feels like the shit that fucking happens to this guy. Dumb things happen. Good things happen. Awful things happen. His life is like an encapsulation of most of our lives, but his world is dialed up to 11. It must be exhausting. When he pulls over to help the man out with his car, I wanted to grab the TV. And you have to remember, I've watched this series a few times. I just wanted to grab the TV and yell at him to remember last season. Matt, don't get out of the car. You know how badly it went last time. And then what happens? He gets out and is immediately... (laughs) knocked out with a blow to the head again. Matt is starting to take the type of punishment. Even Homer Simpson would go, fuck, that's a bit much, right? Matt desperately wants to be the good Samaritan, but every time he attempts to play the role, life smacks him down. The fact that nobody pulls over to help Matt as he pushes his wife in her wheelchair back to Jarden just helps amplify the tragedy that surrounds this couple. Even when something good breaks in his favour, like the policeman letting Matt into the grounds to re-register, he has the awful luck of standing in front of an arsehole who can't just be patient and let Matt have his turn. It is interesting to note that Matt also has an incredible temper. For a religious man, he isn't afraid to drop an F-bomb in frustration or wrestle with a stranger. There's a lot of anger inside of Matt. Was that there before the day of the sudden departure? He does live with the fear of his cancer returning, so does the anger come from there? Or does it come with the dread of the idea that the rapture occurred and not only happened, but left him behind? And then not only left him behind, but punished him with his wife's condition? Ah, Matt... But he's also capable of manipulation and discarding other people's concerns to follow his pious path. As I said before, Matt is just difficult to like, but he is possibly the most compelling character in the show. His contradictions allow him to clash with those around him and also clash with himself. One thing you can never doubt is his dedication to Mary. He loves his wife very much and believes that she will come back. The shame in his eyes when he catches himself in the laptop, grabbing her face aggressively and imploring her to look his way, to give him a sign, is heartbreaking. The physical nature of it is confronting, but you understand where the frustration is coming from, his need to have something go his way to refuel his faith. And it doesn't take much. He doesn't need much. He just needs a little bit. Look, there's a fine line between belief and madness, and with Matt, you feel like he's living that life with both feet firmly placed in both camps. You can see him buffeted back and forth between the two, and this produces an intensity that often pushes other people away. Once again, before the sudden departure, I would guess he was more a man of pure faith, and it is that event that sends him spiralling further into madness. That is why so few people attend his congregation at the beginning of season one it is not unfair to think of him as quite mad that is why when mary speaks to him after he's been attacked the way he responds looks and feels like a man who has lost his marbles but it's also the look of someone who is having his faith repaid yeah maybe he isn't mad either i look This whole episode that I'm talking to you is just going back and forth, isn't it? Like I state one thing, then I say another thing, then it's 
back over here and then it's back over there. And I know this back and forth is just kind of hard to keep up with. But in many ways, it feels like I'm saying one thing only to undermine that thought with the next idea. And yes, you know what that is? That's Matt. That's Matt's life. This is how Matt experiences the world. That is why it is fair to wonder about his madness because he does appear to be blessed at certain times as well. Like, remember the crazy betting he laid down in the casino? Was that blind luck or a touch of the divine spirit influencing events? If Mary woke, was it to give them the opportunity to have the baby they thought was beyond them? Did that man hear Mary's worries about losing the baby? This all sounds like crazy talk, and maybe it is, but remember, the man up the top of the tower in the city centre also wondered who Kevin's friend was when he was yelling with Paddy. If it isn't madness and it isn't magic, do we live in a twilight world where the two tumble like lovers, held aloft by the whims of the world and the chaos of the natural world? What the fuck is going on, right? Matt makes a great guide through the camp, which is full of true believers. What do they believe? Who knows? But they do believe, or they wouldn't be there in the first place. They believe Jarden is the miracle town, or all have their secret motivations to make it inside. This unchecked microcosm of a society is layered with so many sights and sounds. I would have gladly spent a whole episode there exploring as much of it as possible. Like most things in The Leftovers, though, getting that sweet taste is more than enough, and it allows our imaginations to take root and grow. It is probably a lot more fun to wonder what the fuck is going on with the woman in the high heels walking over the backs of men than to actually know the truth. It would probably be less creepy to know the story behind the man reading What's Next, sitting alongside what we presume is a mannequin of a lost love. I'm guessing it would be completely boring to discover why that man needs to be felled with an oar while having the name Brian yelled aloud. Personally, I'd rather not know. I'd rather not know and believe it is possibly a reference to Monty Python's bride. I don't want it confirmed. I don't want it debunked. I just want to believe. Down amongst the lost and angry souls of the camp, we watch Matt thrive and find his way. For someone who struggles in the normal aspects of everyday life, down here he is resilient, in some ways powerful. He passes the tests that come his way. He is brave too, not afraid to take Mary down into the dark with the belief that the light of the city will be on the other side. Is it Ubris that has the water wash him back into the camp or just bad luck? If there is divine intervention, then maybe it is a higher power making certain that Matt is back where he's supposed to be, out amongst the mad people. When Nora arrives, an angel sent down in a white raincoat, she is the help that Matt needs. It is one of my favourite moments in the series when Nora displays her craftiness and sends the cops on a wild goose chase. Nora is smart and loyal. She will do anything to help those she loves. The look on Kevin's face is priceless too. Did he know that she did that or is he still in shock that she did it in the first place? Either way, easily one of my favourite moments from both of them. In the back of the boot, Matt begins to relax and return to normal, but after he finds the dead man who stole his pass, he descends and begins to remove it with little thought for the life that has been lost. It is the little boy, innocent and scared, offering back his wristband that brings Matt back to his senses. Once again, Matt isn't easy to root for here. That he passes on the responsibility of Mary to Nora and Kevin isn't exactly the most generous of moves, but he is reborn with purpose and defined again by this moment.
that he takes the boy to John, restates what happened that night, and believes there will be a time where they can talk openly and truthfully about what happened with Mary is Matt at his best. That he returns to the camp and takes the place of the man in the stocks, it makes sense for Matt to find his place amongst the desperate, the lost, the believers and the violent souls that make up this place. It is here that he can be wholly who he wants to be, who he believes he has to be. His love of the book of Job is also a how-to manual for Matt. He knows inside the town of Miracle isn't where he can do his best work. It isn't where he is supposed to be at the moment. He did the right thing. He returned Mary inside so their unborn baby can live. Now in the heart of the storm where the mania is beyond control, surrounded by the people desperate for answers and a place to feel safe, this is where Matt finally understands his role and finally looks at peace with that knowledge. Okay, we've got some squid bits here for you. Goats are taking a beating in Jardin. This is not a miracle city for them, as we see Jerry leading another one to the slaughter and several goats being hit by the man who stole Matt's wristband. Come on! Is anyone thinking about the goats? Oh, makes me sad. The title of this episode refers to Luke 2, 7 in the Bible, which reads, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Matt and Mary knock on every door in the camp, but nobody answers, not until the rain stops and suddenly Nora is there. Uh, Mary being miraculously pregnant references the Virgin Mary becoming pregnant to the Holy Spirit. Alma quotes William Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, Now climbeth Tamara Olympus's top, safe out of fortune's shot. Uh, I found a couple of meanings for the name Alma, either originating from the Spanish, meaning soul, or Latin meaning nourishing. There was also nourishing. Did I say that correctly? I I feel like I just moved on without uh, pronouncing that properly. Anyway, nourishing kind. There was also a German meaning that brought together noble and famous. So they, they all feel like they kind of represent Alma quite well, don't they, with the little that we see of him. Inside the duck, Matt recites a collect for aid against perils from the Book of Common Prayer. Matt also recites the 1899 poem by W.B. Yeats, the Song of Wandering Angus. Uh, that is a poem that reads... I went out to the hazel wood because a fire was in my head and cut and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry to a thread. And when white moths were on the wing and moth-like stars were flickering out, I dropped the berry in a stream and caught a little silver trout. When I had laid it on the floor, I went to blow the fire aflame, but something rustled on the floor and someone called me by my name. It had become a glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair, who called me by my name and ran and faded through the brightening air. Though I am old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands, and walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done, the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. So... This poem, of course, like all sorts of poems, like many poems, 
probably like all poems, has been interpreted in many ways. But for me, this reads as the yearning of a man who longs to find the perfect love that will never be found. But maybe that's just me. I have this weird kind of tragic romantic view of life sometimes. Uh, In the Matt episode, two boats and a helicopter, Matt is asked by the casino woman uh, which denomination he wants, and he replies thinking she's talking about his faith when she's asking how he wants his money, and this episode has a nice little twist on that. There is irony in the man hitting Matt to enter Miracle, and in turn he is hit once he enters Miracle and he dies. The little boy who didn't want to hit Matt lives and is then saved by Matt. In the background of the scene, when Matt is waiting for Kevin and John to arrive, there is a ranger reading the Jardin Sentinel that has a headline, Biblical Rains in Sydney. Hmm. 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 For those of you who have never seen this before, hmm. (laughs) In the book, Matt and Mary have three children, but they all abandon him once he begins his public smear campaign. The Bellamy Brothers' Let Your Love Flow appeared in the episode A Matter of Geography when the Garveys arrived at Matt's shack. Virus Syndicate's genocide blasting from Alma's trailer in this episode previously also appeared in A Matter of Geography, playing on Kevin's headphones when he is attempting to drown out Paddy. And finally, Lindelof and the writers referred to this as Eccleston's Sonic Screwdriver episode, which of course draws a line between Doctor Who and his final naked scene. And apparently, from what I've read, <laughs> Christopher Eccleston didn't find it as amusing as I quite clearly find it right now. Okay, great episode. Thank you for joining me today. Your company and your time is appreciated. Remember to join our Facebook page. If you want to chat more about this, anyone can join. Just send a request and I'll get to you ASAP. If you're looking for more distractions, you can head over to my website, justinhamilton.com.au, to find blogs and short stories and stuff. We're building up quite the library here now at Big Squid as well. Like, we're getting into the 80s with the episodes. Like, this is still a pretty new podcast, but there are plenty of episodes for you to dig into, ranging from our breakdown of the series Watchmen. That's actually what inspired this podcast, if you are new to it. Uh, The second season has a close look at David Bowie's last album, Black Star. I did all of that in uh, my lockdown during uh, 2020, and there's deep dives into the movies of Christopher Nolan and Sophia Coppola. There's guests like Tom Gleason, Richard Feidler, uh, Rove McManus. Rove has been on a number of times doing some great stuff. Alice Fraser, Alex Jay, and my old pal Ben Elwood. Lots of great people who have given up their time to be a part of this. And uh, it's nice having them join us. Okay, let's finish this episode with a quote from St. Augustine, which feels very appropriate for a Matt Jamison episode. Faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. Until then. Normally, 
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. 